You're listening to the Practically Pastoring Podcast, where we want to help pastors and church leaders share ideas, become better shepherds and leaders, and have a good time with friends. Welcome back to Practically Pastoring. I am one of your hosts, Frank Gill, and I have my friend Jeff Simpson. Hey, hey. Down in South Carolina, Delmar Pete. Hello. And my 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 very excited friends down in the the bays of Florida. B U C C A N E E R S. Go Bucks. That's the song. And Timothy Miller. Hello, world. Hey, so yeah, I mean, let's get this out of the way. There's a lot of Bucks fans on on this call. Um, we, a whole lot of Bucks. We, you know, I just saw on Twitter. Um, Tom Brady put, remade a, uh, that that video of him and Gronk just looking at the camera, shrugging his shoulders, like, what you going to do about it? <laughs> and it's just so smug and so snarky. And I love it. But, but like, I mean, somehow, some way, 2020 and 2021 has made me not hate Tom Brady. And I think it's because he's a Buccaneer. But, like, guys, how do you feel? Did you see how he treated Bowl? Drew Brees' kids last week? I mean, how can you that not be okay with that guy? That was so awesome. I, it was really I nice. I thought that was pretty cool. Hey, Did be see, nice there, to your sister. There's the, the the article that it's like deflate gate was six years ago and I might've been wrong. The one of the ESPN <laughs> guys wrote, I'm just, I, I've, I'm an Ohio state guy. Therefore I've never liked Tom Brady cause he's a Michigan guy. But when you come to the Buccaneers after being what the Buccaneers have been for forever, um, something magical has been happening this year. I can't be mad at it. But it's all thanks Tampa Bay, man. Like that's what yeah. it is. Like Tampa Bay sports this past year, it's something I've never been a no. part of in a city. Like there were fireworks going off in my neighborhood last night. Yeah. I was like, my kids, what is happening? My, my kids were outside during the end of the game, and they came running in. They're like, Dad, I see all the fireworks. Does that mean we won? How awesome is that? I, it was a celebration. That's pretty average here, though, to hear those fireworks f- and think, is the- that fireworks or gunfire? I would say those aren't fireworks where you live, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. that's, uh, wow, that's something different. It's pretty normal. Yeah, <laughs> Delmar. I know this is weird because South Carolina doesn't have an NFL team, right? They, you have to cheer for the North the Carolina Panthers. Panthers. Yeah. <laughs> They're the Carolina Panthers. Oh yeah, so sure. we 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 just we just kind of just own them. You know, why aren't you a Jacksonville fan? You're closer to Jacksonville than the Panthers, aren't you? Yeah, um, true. I think the first hurdle I'd have to get through to be a fan is I'd have to be a fan of sports, and I think <laughs> if that were to happen, did you just skip that Atlanta? Wow. See, Atlanta sounds cooler. You know, like <laughs> well, what's closer? What's closer? Um, is Atlanta's Atlanta? closer? Definitely. Yeah, Atlanta. Atlanta's between where he is in Florida. Okay. Okay. So what's the team in well, Atlanta? What I are, went to what public school in Tampa, Florida. So <laughs> what's geography? You know, <laughs> I'm just saying Atlanta has Ted's, which is one of my favorite places to eat. They have bison burgers if you're ever in Atlanta. So based on food, I will make my sports allocation there. So am I doing good this year or am I doing bad? You're out. If you're, I'm in Atlanta. You, you're I'm, oh. doing the the Braves went to the playoffs. That's the Braves yeah, that's went to the true. playoffs. Woo. Acuna Jr. I mean, hey guys, we will get them next year. Atlanta people, we got them. Dell, you're not long till you can start cheering for the Braves again, though. Spring training soon. You know, you, let me tell you, I did I did cheer for the Braves growing up because there was a country song about cheering for Braves mm. even through the bad years, and I'm a huge country fan. And I was like, you know what? If country 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 music fans cheer for Braves, I'm with them. So that's how I make my decisions. It's pretty, you know. I tell us campus pastors make a decision just through associating stuff. So 100%. 100%. I like that. 
100%. Um, so, so I mean, I, I want honest conversations, not because they're your team, but an honest thought of Buccaneers versus the Chiefs. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? It's the the Chiefs are. If the Chiefs are playing well, nobody can beat them. But I mean, have you seen Tyreek Hill running? It's it's it ridiculous. So we, it we don't really have to worry looks, about the Patriots this year. Is that it, what I'm hearing? Well, Tom Brady. It, yeah, that's correct. Of, but but it really looks like a video <laughs> game when like there was some of those cuts he was making last night. I was like, is this on fast forward? What's going on? Well, when he stops running, the whole field stops, like in anticipation of his next move, I would and then hate he takes to be off. A cameraman trying it to is nuts, follow him. man. That, but also that, that end zone camera. Bay. That, okay, the new the new cameras. It looks that as good as Dell's the, picture right now. If you guys could see this, it really does with the new depth of field. Yes. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. It's you know, I went I went through all the hassle of doing this, and then we don't even. Dell, you really should anymore, watch but. the game just for that camera angle, for real. All right, send me a YouTube link. Cinematography, a, you would appreciate yeah, it. There, there is actually great. several write-ups on the cameras we're using because it's kind of an experimental thing. Yeah, I'll be honest. That, if, if you were to get me into it, that would be the perfect That'd entry. Be the way the, the cameras <laughs> of the NFL. <laughs> Because right now the extent of the bowl that I'm concerned with is is the toilet bowl, right? Oh and, wow! Uh, yeah, and 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 we were talking about this before the show because there okay. is something that is a game changer. This right? transition has gone to the craps because ah, <laughs> ah, because of poop. Oh, we got the transition and a dad joke. That was good. I would really really value to know if there are any other listeners who do have a bidet because yeah, Dell, you do you do right. Dell, I went. I went bidet a, a week ago today, and my Come life on. has never been the same. Right? I, got I, I introduced it to all Christmas. five of my children, and their lives are now changed. So yeah, you're cleaner, and in the long run, you're going to have more money. It's all awesome. toilet paper's not that expensive. <laughs> when yeah, you but also, you're not even using it at all. When the next pandemic hits and everyone buys toilet paper for a completely unrelated reason, they'll be coming to my house. The next lung disease that we need toilet paper for. I mean. I feel like every non bidet owner asks, and I don't have, I haven't heard a good Go answer for, for this. So, Here do you just walk around with a wet butt afterwards? No, no. There's two options here, Frank. One, and I did this for two days. I did do the wet butt. I just <laughs> bidet and got up. And then my wife's like, "Tim, you're supposed to pat." And I'm like, "She's like, you just take a little bit and you just you just lightly pat to dry off." Yeah, because I, I attempted to dry off. In. I attempted to dry off and I and I, I wiped and there was well, whenever you try to wipe something wet, you no. okay. I'm just gonna stop. So 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 I, here we go. At the expense of alienating a lot of people, this is just real talk right here. When you get the bidet, <laughs> really you, you, can, you can air dry, you can do the toilet paper, which, which then you're still using money. Or yeah, I, I know, prefer not to. You you could just uh you could you know, when you get done down there, you're clean. Like no you are clean. So just have a towel that's dedicated just to pat. You got a butt towel? Yes, I got a butt towel. It's kind of like a sweat towel when you preach. I mean, honestly. (laughs) But don't mix those two up, though. It's so much (laughs) faster. Okay, let me me tell you what my my PD self was, my pre-bidet. I always thought that, like, the, the PD was, like, it was like a water fountain, like a little trinkle. That is not true. It is like those fountains outside of Universal Studios. Isn't it like just you know a super soaker in your toilet? It, 
Oh yeah, yeah. Well, so we, except I gotta, you I, pumped it like like thirty times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah the, the springs about the blow. My son, um, I tell him not to go in the bathroom, mess with stuff. And the other day, he was not listening. He went in there and cranked the nozzle all the way to a right, and it shot him in the face. I go in, he's pinned against the wall, and the water just going <laughs> that's all incredible. over the whole bathroom. I was like, son, he 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 wouldn't go in the bathroom for like two days. I was like. Well, don't mess with daddy's bidet and you'll be all right. Frank, I'm going to I'm going to leave a link for the bidet so we can drop the link in the show notes. It's thirty five dollars on Amazon if you'd like the, uh, it, the life human. changing experience. And it's, it's only cold it. water, to be straight. It's only cold water, right? It's cold. It's refreshing. It's refreshing. where you are. OK, no. guys, 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 granted, clearly. Cl- hey, it's worth it. This really is the most clearly incredible conversation we've had on here. Because, of course, this conversation went straight to poop humor. <laughs> I, f- listeners, if you're still listening, I- I'm sorry. We're going to get back on track. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get to our clergy cliff notes. Again, I want to apologize. And we know what Dell and Tim are doing during <laughs> yeah. that break. We'll be right back <laughs> after this. Thanks. Oh. day break. Welcome back. We are now going to do some clergy cliff notes. Um, I got I got two articles here that I think will be lead some good discussion. The first one comes from the Gospel Coalition, and it's about ever heard of them? Yeah, <laughs> ever heard of them? It, it's, it's entitled. Way he said that. Uh, three. <laughs> it's a small little uh, blog, you know. Um, so three things single parents wish you knew, and it's an article basically kind of, kind of pleading with pastors or maybe other believers in, in a broader sense about what a uh, single parent Christians are kind of going through. And, 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 you know, kind of the, the big headers there is that they need a break, that they need a family and that they need leadership and counsel. And so uh, the reason why I want to bring this up, it's a, it's a pretty decent article. If, if you should read it, but one thing I want to bring up is, is one thing I've noticed at the preaching at my church and preaching across the country is that a lot of people's illustrations kind of target the nuclear family, right? A, 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 a dual parent household with some kids. It's never targeted towards the young college student unless it's a college ministry. It's never targeted towards seniors unless your church is predominantly senior citizens. And, and typically the sermons are illustrated towards the life stage of the pastor. And so my question to you is, how do you keep in mind folks like single parents college age or, or or not even college age singles but like young adult singles or singles in general um and then also talking about the empty nesters how are you keeping in mind because our preaching must contextualize to the every single person in our in our, in our congregations how are you keeping those in mind when you are writing your sermons uh i think the first thing is just not to be too dependent on illustrations um in your application so if if your all your applications depend on a really specific illustration maybe rethink that um, and that way, you know, you're applying it more to the Christian life in general. Uh, but secondly, I just think it just is a matter of building relationships intentionally with those specific kinds of people. So there's a number of people in my church who are single adults. Uh, and there's one lady in particular who is uh, single. She's a little older than my parents, and uh, she's lived by herself for decades and decades. So I pretty regularly will ask her opinion about Hey, I'm trying to communicate this. How do you think this sounds? Do you think this still applies? And so, you know, I, just, I think it's just making yourself coachable from those kinds of people. And then with, 
you know, with, with single parents, we have a number of single moms in our church. And so uh, part of it is, again, just relationships and then just inviting their kids to do things with your kids if you can, um, especially like as a dad with, you know, if there's women in your church that are single moms and their kids don't have a lot of time with their dad, it can be really helpful to you to bring their kids along on things that you're doing with your kids and just kind of give them that like, you know, you're going to do activities with them that maybe their mom isn't going to do. So one time, I think it was last winter, it was like snowy. And so I was taking my daughter sledding. So, you know, we we invited the one, uh, one of the kids from a single mom home over to just come sledding with us because it was like a chance to get out and get a little, you know, get a little slushy and dirty in the in the snow or whatever, like an activity you would probably do with dad. And so that just helps you stay connected pastorally. And then also when you think about preaching, it helps you just, it just kind of puts their face in your mind when you're thinking and writing. Like, you know, every illustration can't be about parenting a five-year-old because that's what I'm doing right now, or, you know, dealing with marital issues because not everybody has that. And uh, it's really easy to make people feel left out and kind of disenfranchised in the church. So I have like a standing meeting on Tuesdays. Most times I meet with a guy who's, uh, he's a couple years younger than I am, but he's, he's been single his whole life. He's not married. Um, and he's just a single guy. He's an engineer and, you know, we just talk about life. And so that's a chance for me to get a perspective on life from somebody who's living as a single. I've never, I've never been an adult and been single. I've, I got married when I was like 20. So, and I was dating my wife for like five years before that. So I've never experienced any part of adult life as a single person. So I really need to intentionally ask for that feedback from people. Yeah, man. I think just to kind of go off of that, um, one of the most valuable things you can do in that space is to have some space in your life to be around those singles. You know, like even yesterday, I dropped in on our single ministries during the sermon because I can do that, right? Because our senior pastor was preaching yesterday. And uh, just kind of get to know them, get to talk to them, have them in your life. I know somebody else who's on our preaching team, he's unmarried. So just having him in the sermon writing process is very helpful. And if you have the option, uh, the opportunity to to maybe throw some of your illustrations you're thinking about off of someone who's not in the same life stage as you, they're going to give you really good feedback on, hey, that's really cool if you have a five-year-old, you know? And um, so, yeah, I think one of the biggest things is I just, just to thank Frank, I think um, you just need to be aware that it's an issue. You know, like how many times do we just walk into a sermon and we get so laser focused on the exposition and the homily that like we don't really sometimes we sometimes forget to exegete our audience, so to speak. So like it's really important for us to be considering who is listening and um, be aware of the context. And if you know, if I'm speaking at a um, a senior senior, you know, adults conference, I, I'm going to contextualize that a little bit different than on a Sunday morning or even with students. So being aware of that. And then one thing that I've just seen um, work really well in my context is the power of tenure. I know that there are some pastors listening right now and you've got some tenure in ministry. You've lived in multiple life stages while in ministry. Like, don't forget to continue to tap into that. That's one thing that my pastor has, you know, passively taught me through sitting under his leadership is when he preaches, he oftentimes is mixing in. You know, I was with Steve a while back and Steve lost his wife. He's an empty nest to the T right now. And he's really good at being cognizant of like the other life stages that you've also been in. 
So those are some of the things that we we try to do. And like I said, I mean, just to the credit of this clergy cliff note, I think this is something that's not a bad thing to write on your paper um, when when you're when you're combing over your sermon the last time. You know, how does this application interact with every single type of person listening? Well, yesterday I gave an illustration of like this goes to what you were saying, like give if you do give illustrations, use like ones that are pretty generic that no matter what stage of life is in, you probably have experience. So I was going to give an illustration out of kind of the marriage context. But then yesterday I thought of a different way to give the same illustration based on like telling a story about being at a party with a plus one. And, you know, I made sure to say like, and if, you know, if you're single, you've probably been to a party with your best friend, or if you're married, you go with your spouse. So you try to like apply that to more than one kind of person. And that, you know, hopefully was helpful. Yeah. And also like sometimes your sermon illustrations really are married to a life stage, right? Like I was listening to Mark Driscoll's sermon uh, yesterday on pre on praying this week. It's a pretty good sermon, but one of his illustrations is really, really closely married to the father child. Um, you know, relationship that we have with our earthly fathers. And what he did was, and I think this is wise, sometimes just call out the obvious. Hey, some of you didn't have good dads growing up. So some of you, 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 you might not can relate to this, but that's, that doesn't mean that it still doesn't apply to you. And then he showed you how this should translate. So sometimes if the illustration is exceedingly married to, um, you know, the point Go ahead and say, listen, some of you may not be in this space, but this is how it applies to you in this space. Under the age of 11 right now, and then try to tie that into how that could also be applicable to them as well. But Jeff, I also like what you said in this idea of how, how can we make the application portions of our sermon applicable for for more than just the illustration that we used. And, and that comes back. I mean, we're going to be reading gospel centered church as a, as a group real soon. And we're, we're actually going to be hitting on a topic. I think it's chapter five when it specifically touches on preaching and, and how, how much of our sermon really should be dedicated to practical application. And a lot of that could come back to this topic because are we really going to give these incredible application points to one third of our congregation while the other two thirds feel alienated because those practical application points didn't really land with them at all. So I think it's going to be a good discussion. But going to the article, I love the ending where Tessa says, asking someone in your church, what's it like for you as a single parent? I love that idea because that's not just the sermon. That's in your small group. That's discipleship. That's coming alongside them. That is so much more than just us as pastors trying to fit it into our sermon somehow. Well, yeah, I mean, so discipling we... people is so much more than sermons. It's exactly. not less, but it's so much more. Yeah. But, yep. but we, we treat it it's like, oh, well, we don't want to bring up the fact that they're, well, they, they know they're a single parent. Yeah. Like for, for a single parent to get up, get, you know, I'm thinking where, where I am with, with young kids, but for so to, it's hard enough to get my kids to church and there, there's two of us. So like for a single parent to make the choice to be in church, it's, it's a difficult step to begin with. Mm. So they, they know what's going on. You don't need to tiptoe around anything. One one thing that that I say on a regular basis, and it's not me, I stole it from somebody else, but it's like, don't let the real get in the way of the ideal. And so it's like, yes, ideally, you wouldn't be going through that, but single parents don't need the reminder that they're single parents. They know. Every aspect of their life reminds them that they're single parents. And so I think in some ways, just the the gentle reminder of, okay, here's how you apply this 
no, no matter where you are. And I, I kind of go through life stages when I sit just basic applications. Like if you're a student, here's how this works. If you're dating, here's how this works. If you're at work, here's how this works. And so instead of just here's how you apply this in your family, but here's how you apply this across the board. But also just when you have single people in your church or you have single parents in your church, you need to realize that they're going to have different needs than the rest of your churches, and that's okay for them to have different needs. My wife is at a Bible study. Um, well, she will be in a couple hours. It's a Monday night Bible study. And the only people in that Bible study that we as a church are providing child care for are the single parents because – my wife does not need childcare for her kids for her to go to the Bible study because I can step up and make dinner and be a dad tonight. But there are other women who need to be in that Bible study that 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 they don't have that option. Mm. And so part of showing grace is by not having the exact same expectations out of every single person that is in your church or that makes up your congregation. And part of grace is that's messy. Yep. And it means well someone's like, well, you know, We've got child care for them, but what about my kids? You know, my husband's wants to watch a game or wants to do that. Well, do you know what? Being a church that's going to be open and welcoming to people at every life stage means we can't treat all people exactly the same. And we have to be comfortable with the tension that exists between ideal and real. You know, even thinking through the way we run some of our ministries and programs thinking through this is, is helpful. I love, I, I appreciate what you said, Andrew, the idea of like, we're going to offer childcare for single parents because they're in a unique situation where parents where families that have two parents are in a completely other situation. Right. Um, uh, I think that uh, one thing that what I love with the article is, is what you said, Tim, is to have those conversations with people. And I think the the root of it is as a minister, as a pastor, are you like exercising those relationships? Because I think sometimes naturally we want to be in relationship with people who are in similar situations as us. So it's very easy for me to try to find relationships of other married men in their thirties who are whatever, where, where, it's going to be a much more awkward and difficult thing for me to uh, to um, to build relationships with like a single mother like that. That's going to take some more effort on my part, right? Um, and, and I think having those kind of conversations is going to be great in terms of not only benefiting your sermon but also benefiting your churches in general. Hey, here's another clergy cliff note that we got coming from Christianity Today. Uh, Ever heard of them? Ever heard of them? It's entitled, the article is entitled, um, Phil Trump Prophecies is a Lesson in Humility. And so there's an article here that's pretty long. I forgot how long Christianity article Can I just say, be. this is danger, danger territory here. Careful. You're talking okay, about Trump well, now. Just be careful. I, well, here's the thing. This conversation should not be about Trump, more so about prophets and prophecies and what's interesting is this article does what do you mean it should not be about god's (laughs) anointed elected one wow careful stop it god told me (laughs) in an sms text message that he had chosen why specifically sms because <laughs> God doesn't have an iPhone. He doesn't have iRisons. Neither do any of these weird conspiracy nuts. <laughs> They're all hey, Android I, people. We know I, it. I, I will we say, know some, it. Some conspiracy, conspiracy wow. theorists have green text messages. I said it. <laughs> <laughs> Quote that, please. There, there used that. to be a time where I, whenever I saw, whenever I went to a conspiracy website, I was like, oh, it, you can tell it's bad because they 
they're still using GeoCities or something. Like it's such a bad website, <laughs> <laughs> but but they are uh, they're using Squarespace now or something. They're, they're getting better. Anyways, they're using Android <laughs> because Parler got taken off of iPhone. So there's that. I think it, I think they're taking <laughs> off of, of Android. Anyways, that has nothing to do about Trump as much as it has to do with the profits, the people who prophetically claimed that Trump was going to be president. They're now since the inauguration are backpedaling. No, sorry, let me let me give him more grace. I'm sorry, that, that that was rude. They are now apologizing. They're 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 repenting of the false prophecies that they made. And so this article is kind of taking a deep dive on that situation, and and it talks a little bit about kind of prophecy and scripture, and and they've interviewed some people of what prophecy kind of means, and and that's probably maybe a little bit more open as a secondary issue for some of us in terms of what does prophecy in its truest sense mean in your church. But what's interesting is this, is, you know, some of these prophets, prophets, these people who profess that, the, that Trump is going to be president are apologizing and they're dealing with some backlash. So like they're dealing with um, one person mentioned that they were being cursed out and even having death threats from so-called Christians because not because that they prophesied wrong, but because they are den- they're they're backpedaling on their prophecy, saying that they were wrong in that prophecy, and uh, and so they're getting death threats. You know, there was they, they quote a passage here about how sometimes people are looking to prophets not to actually give a prophetic word, but to, to tell them like things they want to hear because people don't want hear biblical prophecy. So I don't want I, I want to have a quick discussion. We. Uh, not about necessarily the nature of prophecy in your church and, and how you feel about what happened, but more about the issue of repentance and confession. Because one thing I'm noticing is, you know, Andrew, you made a joke about conspiracy theorists. You know, if you make a bold claim about conspiracy theories, some of those conspiracy theories can be slander if they're not correct, right? Like so-and-so is a pedophile. That's a slanderous statement if that's not true, right? Right. So when when their conspiracy theory is proven incorrect, one thing that we never see is that person who promoted that conspiracy theory publicly apologizing for promoting misinformation. Right? We we usually kind of say like, "Well, oh well," and we and they, and people move on. I think um, when we see this example, I'm actually very encouraged. Whether I was into their prophecies or not, like I'm encouraged that there was repentance here. There, there are people apologizing for making. A false statement because false prophets are dealt very harshly in scripture. Like it's not like a joke that you can just kind of be kind of whatever about. And so I guess my question is, is like when it comes to confession and repentance, what does that look like in your church? Because one thing I don't see very common, unless it's communion Sunday uh, for our churches, is we don't really talk about confession and repentance as a body too often. Maybe, maybe in your context it's different, but in my context, we kind of only talk about kind of public confession repentance, right? You know, the, the 10 minutes before we take communion and we say, hey, don't eat this if you haven't apologized to somebody, right? Like, like what does confession and repentance look like? Because we're seeing people publicly confess and repent and they're getting beat up by other evangelicals. So what does that look like for you in your church? First of all, you just made a great case for why you should have communion every week. Wow. I mean... I'm not disagreeing, but... <laughs> Is, I mean, I, I will say, I mean, I think that, you know, I'm sure, Jeff, you're like just you're preaching to the choir here. But like, I think a great argument for weekly communion is to have that continual 
um, habit of participating in a rhythm where you are confessing and repenting of your sins. Well, and I think weekly. that's I think that's the key to this conversation, specifically about repentance and confession. It is not part of the evangelical normal rhythm of our. It's not part of the ethos of our spirituality as kind of white evangelical Christians specifically. That's the background I come from. I've never been in a church where confession and repentance was like as normal as singing three songs. But Jeff, you know what I'm saying? Why is that? Jeff, Jesus said all of our sins are forgiven and past, present, and future. So why should we confess right now? Well, he also said uh, if you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive them. So, I mean, I think it's an awareness. In a serious serious note, um, I do think confession, part of the piece we miss with confession, and this is in my own, you know, reading and, and growth over the last time since I've been out of like Bible college and in ministry. Part of it is that we don't, I think we don't view confession and repentance as part of our spiritual formation and part of our discipleship, that the act of confessing itself is forming you into the kind of person who is not walking in a double-minded way. You're not trying to look better than you are. I mean, to quote Chandler, that's one of his biggest things. Like, don't try to act like you're better than you are, because if you're, he always says, if you're 99% known, you're you're 100% unknown. And to me, that's that's the key part of it is that the act of confessing, the act of repenting is actually formative for the person who is doing the confession and repentance as much as it is about, you know, making making the statement that I was wrong. It's about making you into the kind of person who is okay with admitting when you're wrong. Yeah, I think one of the things I've seen with repentance, at least with humans, we tend to either um, make it too high or too low in what our other life. kinds of I was going to say, where where else have you experienced repentance besides (laughs) humans? Wow, you know, that's a... That's deep. Let me think on that. All right, keep going. Anyways, you threw me off, man. Now I'm going on this weird (laughs) trail. All right, so in the fourth dispensation... All right, anyways. um, No... I think we tend to make it too high or too low, right? Like we 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 de- we downplay repentance as you know he saved us. Just you're a new creation. Live as the new creation. Don't dwell on the thing. Get over it. And there's a lot to be lost about what you just said was true in the sense of we need to be owning our failures so that way we can see them, so we can see where God needs to sanctify us, so we can know where we need to grow. And then I also think about, you know, the nature of repentance and that all of life is just one act of repentance, you know, in the sense of God constantly calling us to be new people and uh, coming out of our sin. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we we can make it very high and lofty. I remember the first time I went to a high liturgy church, I was actually speaking at it and um, it was very highly liturgical. So there was a spot in the service where they all just started confessing sin. And I'm sitting on the stage because it was one of those churches that's got like the big preacher chair on stage. You know what I'm talking about? Like the big like build out of four by fours with a nice cushion. Anyway, I'm sitting there. Chancel chairs. And like, yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I felt like Emperor Palpatine. Anyways, I'm up there and uh, everybody just starts confessing their sin to themselves. And and I'm like breaking, like like in a good way. I'm like, wow, this is beautiful that these people would come together and confess. And then I kind of looked out amongst the crowd and noticed that half their eyes were glazed over because it had become a religious practice in this particular place. So it wasn't even really being thought about to the level of which it was probably designed to be thought about. So we could take it and make it so high that it becomes ritualistic and then it becomes so low that it becomes non-existent. And I think the, the, 
the struggle for the Christian and even the pastor is constantly keeping that awareness alive and fresh in us because that spirit works in us fresh daily. And I do think that is part of us as leaders is, is to be communicating the importance of daily repentance, not for ritual's sake and not, um, not repenting because Jesus died for it. I think the idea of repentance in a church and, you know, the, the prophecy element of this article aside, when people see their leaders repenting, they will be more prone to repent. One thing that that, that I've struggled with um, in in our our denomination that that Tim and I are in, the there have been you know calls to repentance and things by some of the leadership of the denomination, and it's you know we're going to repent for you know letting racist thoughts you know enter into how how we operate and things like that, and the immediate response in me is, well, wait a second. What am I didn't do that? What am I repenting? Why am I repenting for something that happened 30 years ago in this denomination? But then when you see the leadership say, no, no, we're going to own that something bad happened when we were at the wheel and we are going to repent and seek forgiveness for that. After my initial defensive reaction of why am I repenting for something that I had nothing to do with? It's, oh, okay. Well, if they're willing to admit where an error has been made, Maybe I should be willing to look in the mirror and admit when an error has been made. And I think I think repentance from a leadership position opens up the people that you are called to lead to examine themselves and repent and confess. Somebody sent me a sermon this week, and it was this church, and it's a decent-sized church, and the pastor was up there just yelling, and he was talking about the election, and he was like, we said Trump was going to win we were right. He did win. It was stolen from us. And da, 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 da. Now, wherever you land on that, okay, whatever. But like, is that what, how are you helping your people by riling them up in that direction? Right? Like how, where's the pastoral care in that? Yeah, you were wrong. Let's go get them or whatever. Um, and then I heard another pastor spin it as, um, oh, Trump did win um, because we we did have the spirit of Trump has now descended upon us, and now the Trumpian party is is amongst us, and it's alive. What I'm pastors like, pastors, are you listening to Dell? Dude, Dude I saw the same clip. It's no, a real thing. Hold up, this is stuff that gets inboxed <laughs> to me daily on social media, and I, I'm sitting here and I'm trying to like be forthright and caring, but at the same time, I'm like, this is literally how the Jehovah Witnesses got started. This is this is literally oh we the second coming was coming he didn't really come oh he came in spirit no we were wrong repent I I, I Andrew I, I think you said something that was that that made me think about this one thing I, I, I this is not original to me on the Holy Post uh, Jamar Tismir was interviewed and he talked about this how you know you mentioned how why should I repent I wasn't a part of that right um, you know one thing he talked about how like we as a country. We love to be associated with good things and then reject things when it's bad. So, like, Andrew, I mean, you would say, we are going to the Super Bowl. Andrew, you're not on the box. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm I'm not. But, I, but, I, but, but, but like, that <laughs> phrase, we, like, we love saying I that. wore like, a Tom Brady a TB12 t-shirt yesterday, though, so. <laughs> but, but, you know, we associate ourselves with things we want to be a part of, whether it's, you know, a sports team. We are going to the Super Bowl. We won this game. 
or even political things. We won World War II. We, you know, we bombed Japan. Like, like we, even though we personally didn't do that. Now, flip. I it. would like to not be associated with the atomic bomb. Pers- that's just me. Like, you guys sure. can have it. I will. It's a personal I will, preference, really. I will. Yeah. But folks say we won World War II, right? And and I think like in that same sentiment, it's is we have to acknowledge that we are benefiting from systems that may have hurt people that may have of of mishandled things and so when we enter into the conversation of confession and repentance it it, it may not even necessarily be i did this but we're going to acknowledge that there was sin involved and we're going to have a a conversation of resolving this in a a christ-honoring way and i think and i think like whenever we I mean, Andrew, I love what you said. When, when, if, if we repent as leaders, the people, our people are going to be more prone to repenting. Gosh, we got to get over our egos and be willing to apologize. I think we're so good at spinning things and trying to figure out ways to kind of put the blame on systems and forces. And, and whether it's like, oh, if something dropped in our church, we'll say, well, COVID was crazy, right? And, and as opposed to saying... I was distracted and therefore I couldn't accomplish something or whatever. I, I think I think we need to be able to 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 flex that muscle, confession and repentance more. Whether that means figure out a way to have a consistent rhythm in our services where we have confession and repentance like communion more often, or we just have a more vulnerable approach to our own lives and say, hey, I'm a sinner just like everyone else, and this is how I handle confession and repentance in my own life. And I bring that up in my sermons. Going back to preaching one more time, um, one thing someone uh, convicted me of was that oftentimes in preaching, when you use yourself as an illustration, you're always the hero, right? Like, and, and, and I think like, I kind of go the opposite way. If I'm bringing myself up, I go as self-deprecating as possible, which is also, but, but that also can be a, a bad thing too, if you're always the butt of the joke too. And so I think understanding that there has to be some middle ground here where we're not the heroes. Like I don't have the perfect devotional time all the time. I'm not always the best person to my wife. I'm not always that, but at the same time, I'm not the worst human to ever live either. Right. So somehow in our sermons, being able to reflect, Hey, you know, I wronged someone and this is how I made it right. As opposed to saying, well, I heard a story about a friend of mine who wronged someone and this is how they made it right. That small nuance can 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 uh, change your people much more dramatically because now they see a man of the cloth acknowledging their own sin. A right? man of the cloth. Like that is such more significant. I know. I don't, I have never used that. Is that the same life. cloth that Dell keeps? <laughs> never mind. <It's> never. <laughs> There it is. I was waiting for a callback, man. Wow. Callbacks, buddy. It's a good sermon. Good. You're like John Mulaney. It's a good callback. All right. Hey. Um, it's, the t- it's the tie. It is a tie. Hey, this was a good conversation. I, I think there's more to this conversation about how do we how do we consistently have confession and repentance. I would love for you. Maybe we'll bring this up in the, in the in the group chat this week. Not the group chat. The group Facebook group. Um, to see how how are you doing this? Are you a church like Jeff that has communion every single week? Or do you have this, like, maybe prayer services that, that during the week we spend some time in intentional prayer and confession and repentance is an element of that? I would love to hear more from you guys. But we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into a main discussion about church discipline. We'll be right back.
Hey, Frank here. Real quick, before we get back to the show, there are two things I want you to know about. Uh, we uh, want you on the show. And the way you can do that is by asking us questions. And there's a way to, to um, be able to ask questions through your phone or through your computer by going to the link uh, in our description that talks about how you can uh, give us a question. You can make an audible recording of your voice through Anchor, this this website that we're using, and you'll be able to ask us any question. We would love to use your questions. They don't necessarily have to be mystery-related, but they can be. It, we want to use them for our question of the day or, or maybe something else that we could use in, in one of our upcoming shows. So if you, if you have a chance, go into the description, see where you can ask us a question, and, and shoot us a question, and maybe you'll be able to be on the next episode of Practically Pastoring. The other thing we want you to know about is this. We started a book club. Every single month, we and a bunch of you guys and ladies in the uh, Practically Pastoring Facebook group are going to be reading a book together. And so every book we recommend, we're going to uh, make sure there's an audible component so that way you can listen to that version, whether you're driving or working out or whatever you're doing. Uh, for those of us like me who are not, you know, the best at just reading, you know, ink on paper. So we are going to be reading a book called The Gospel Centered Church by Jared C. Wilson for the month of February. Uh, and, and in the end of the month, we're going to have a Facebook live where we'll be able to chat all about it. Um, in the Facebook group. So if you haven't joined our Facebook group, make sure you join our Facebook group. Uh, just search Practically Pastoring as a Facebook group or click on the link in the show notes and you'll be able to join our Facebook group and uh, and, and go pick up that book. Uh, all the information's in the Facebook group. We would love for you to join our book club. It's going to be so awesome growing and learning with one another every single month um, for the year of 2021. All right, let's get back to the show. Hey, welcome back. We are going to dive into our main discussion. And what got me thinking about this conversation of church discipline is one, practically speaking, I personally haven't had to enact church discipline on an adult in my entire life. Uh, and, and But I've had to deal with it in, in some student ministry situations. But I feel like those were kind of way smaller than what we're probably even going to really talk about. Uh, there was an article that came up uh, from religion. Is it religion news or religious news? It's one of those. One of those, it's called something. Never religion heard of news. Rel- yep. Religion news. Yeah. And it's called SBC President J.D. Greer's Church launches an a investigation into the past actions of Brian Loritz. And so. Uh, really, it's just a headline that jumps off the screen to you. It's <laughs> yeah. really good. Yeah. I think it says inquiry. So basically. <laughs> oh, uh, kind of the rundown is this. In, in Memphis, Brian Loritz uh, was a pastor of a church called Fellowship Memphis Church, and there was a situation where they had hired some folks that uh, were essentially peeping toms. They were putting cameras in the women's restrooms, and they were taking pictures or videos. Uh, like it was his women. brother-in-law, right? It wasn't just yeah, like it was his yeah. brother-in-law, some guy. One, like one, one wasn't related; the other one was related, I think, or, yeah. or something like that. Right. And ultimately, the way and the that's not ha- why they were hired. Like you, you said, they hired these people. For clarity. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not what they yeah. were hired to do. That's, that that needs sure to that be clear. Said. That's not a job description I'm entertaining. Yeah. Pretty sure. I'm pretty sure uh, the brother-in-law was a was the worship director of the church. So, 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 so. Long story short, uh, people were fired. There were um, there was some counseling offered to the women who were involved, and they dealt with the issue in house. Now, obviously, these are like legal issues. Like this is something yeah. that like people could go to jail for. And this is, I mean, and so 
Well, and he did go to jail for it. He late, he did go to jail for it, like in in yeah for an unrelated oh, yeah, thing yeah. where he was doing he was doing it somewhere else. Yeah, and so there, there there's probably a lot to unpack there in terms of like the like how's the vetting process going? Like maybe it wasn't wise to hire a brother-in-law that obviously had this like pervasive symptom. Maybe he didn't know about it. There, there's a lot of discussion there, but JD Greer, who's the president of SBC, is launching an investigation into this situation because um, obviously the SBC has kind of been plagued with a abuse scandal over the past couple of years. Well, I mean, they these, these scandals have been kind of raised to the top over the past couple of years. And, 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 and there's this discussion that I'm interested in having with you guys is, is when it comes to church discipline, A, like how are you guys processing that? When have you seen that done well, not well, and things like that. But where is the line here? I I have an idea of where the line is. Where is the line when you have internal issues and you bring in outside authorities to handle it? Because on first read, when I read this, I'm turning this brother into the police. Like this is a, a giant like crime and I don't understand like why it didn't happen. I, I there might be things I don't know about in this story, but I would love to hear from you guys. Where is the line? And also, I want to have a greater discussion on church discipline. I believe the line is render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And if something is, hey, this is a spiritual issue. This is this person is you know committing spiritual abuse. This person is not holding the office they should be holding in their church the way they are. That's very different from this is an actual crime. If something is an actual crime in the United States of America, it should be handled by law enforcement in the United States of America. If this was a crime in any other environment, then you turn him in. If it's a sin in the church, but not necessarily a crime in another environment, then maybe it's just church discipline. So like, for instance, so like, for instance, if you have a pastor who is a chronic liar, that's grounds for church discipline and probably he shouldn't be a pastor, but you don't need the police involved for that. Or necessarily I'll, I'll raise you up just for say, lying. You know, if if somebody is if somebody has an affair, absolutely exactly. remove that person from ministry. But just because something is immoral doesn't mean that it's always illegal. Right. But if something is illegal, it's always immoral too. It's always immoral. So well, well let me let me ask you this one. Here's a, here's an interesting scenario that I actually I'm aware of. Um, embezzlement. So so let's say you hired bad. someone. Let's say you, let's say let's say you had a youth pastor who was using the church funds inappropriately to fund stuff personally. Now, it's not Too buying much a mansion, pizza. but it's it, it's like buying personal dinners and they're yeah. lying on the card saying they're eating out with someone. That's a form of embezzlement, which is illegal, but you don't necessarily have to go to the police for it. You could just fire them. Like, is this a situation where it's like all embezzlement needs to go to the police? Or is this an example where it's like you take one of this on the chin as a church and just fire that person. What would you guys do in that situation? Well, I don't think embezzlement is directly a sin against another person either. It is a sin against the church, and you can make the argument, yeah, collectively it's a sin against the people who've given to the church. But he isn't he isn't like hurting another person specifically in doing that. But on the other side of it, you could say, yeah, just report it to the police, and they'll probably be like, we're not going to deal with this because right, he stole two hundred bucks in right. pizza. We don't care. There's a, a church that's literally four minutes away from us here, and they hired a new pastor, and he like you like eyebrows were raised, like, really, this guy? Okay. This is you know, a big church a few years ago. Know, yeah, probably close to close to the mega. At one point they would have been considered a mega church. They're not quite as big as they used to be. Isn't that uh, Tim's um, church? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, for sure. 
that, that that's that's how Tim got his job. Um, Continue. No, uh, he embezzled fifteen thousand oh, dollars. The senior God. pastor embezzled fifteen thousand dollars, and they they caught it and they fired him. And because he paid the money back, and like I I have my info from the Tampa Bay Times, not from gossiping with the church secretary. This is like what was in the paper was well because he paid it back. The church decided not to press charges, and my spidey senses went. Hold on a second! Like at some point, twelve years from now, that guy is going to apply at another church, and so you know, yes, two hundred dollars worth of pizza is one thing. Um, you know, taking your wife out on a date on the church card is bad, but it's not fifteen thousand dollars bad. But at some point character has to shine through and by you not reporting it you're setting up the next church down the line to pay for your lack of discipline Mm. Mm. i have a couple questions behind a couple stories and i have pondered these and i think you guys would be able to shine some light even on me you know growing up i uh went to I was SBC. Then when I needed some good theology, I went to PCA for a while. And uh, I, while I was at the PCA church one day, the services were over and the pastor said, listen, if you're a member here, will you please stay? And everyone else left. And um, this woman came up front and in front of the whole church confessed that um, she had had an affair and she was pregnant and she was unmarried. And like the church had met with her and, um, asked her, said, if you want to be in right standing with the church, you need to confess your sins. And like, she did that. And um, I mean, they did forgive her. It was very, I think there's a lot of churches that could never withstand true confession like that. Um, But I've seen that happen. And then there was another situation where it was involved in an affair. And I guess I'm asking, where's the line in between these two situations? Okay, fellas. But like, there was another church. um, I'll just go ahead. Full disclosure. I I worked at this church. It's not where I'm at now. So just say, but, uh, one of my adult leaders was having an affair with one of the children's leaders and it was a legit affair. So um, I brought it up to the pastor because the children's worker girl had informed some of my students that this was going on. So this is really bad at this point that adult leaders are confiding into students about their affairs. So I grabbed those students. We went to the pastor and we said like, this is what's going on. And he says, okay, don't say anything. I'll get to the bottom of it. And then he never did anything. It's a red flag. And I approached, yeah, I approached him and I said, hey, pastor, we never did anything. He goes, well, I have no evidence. Those students then go home and tell their parents, hey, the leaders are confiding to me about having an affair and the pastors know. And 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 I got raked over the coals because it looked like I was putting it under the rug, so to speak. Now, I will go ahead and let you know that was one of my contributing reasons that I ended up leaving that church was because um, in that church, who do I go to now? My own senior pastor at this church. And he he says, Dell, if, if we do this, it can destroy the church and we don't even have proof. Um, so I said, well, I can't in good conscience sit under this. So, um, you know, there's the absence of it. And then there's the, you have to stand in front of every single congregant and confess it. Where, where do you guys land? Well, and then even where, where do you think this pastor should land? Yeah, I'll tell I mean, you, he that, got fired. There has to be like, so there's a, an accusation, right? And I've experienced this one before at, at my current church. There's, there's an accusation. And then what happens if the person accused does not fess up? 
and you don't have actual proof because that sounds like what you guys dealt with right that's Dylan? what we went through yeah or sometimes the accuser doesn't want to keep going they make an accusation one time and then they're like ah never mind i yes, don't want to that's kind of what happened um one of our students saw them kissing behind the church and uh then by that's the evidence. time we Yes, by the time well, by the time we got to the student, the student was really close to one of the adults. Mm. So by the time we got the student in front of the adult, she goes, "Well, I might have just been seeing things. I don't think that. I don't think I saw it. Yeah, it's dude, rough, it man. was. Yeah. So the pastor just put it under the rug. Well, and Frank, so like, you you asked in in the we have a you know document with like what we're going to talk about, and in this section you had put how have you seen this done poorly, and in my experience the the main way that I've seen church discipline done poorly is exactly what Dell you just talked about where the pastor or or the elders don't do church discipline when they should and they are you know they they sort of abdicate their role of shepherding and leading um and in my I, I was at a church where we had an accusation of the an elder's wife who happened to also be a staff member at the church was accusing another woman in the church who worked with the elder of having an affair with him. And we went to the senior pastors like, Hey, this is a big problem. Even if this, even if this accusation is just like a weird control manipulation thing by the elder's wife, like we have an elder's wife and an elder whose marriage is in a really bad spot right now. Even if it's just, she's so mad at him, she's making wild accusations. Like we need to step into this and, you know, those of you who are spiritual should restore the brother. Um, that needs to be part of that conversation. Now, I've just seen the most often way I've seen church discipline done poorly is when it's just not done or when a pastor knows something is going on. And th- I mean, literally, the senior pastor in that situation said, well, I mean, it might not be true. And I mean, so I mean, if they're not really having an affair, then we don't really need to step in because, you know, I mean, that would be really difficult. And you know, it's like, it, yeah, it is really difficult. That's what you signed up for. You're a shepherd of people, and sometimes it's hard. You know, I think that's a good point. Like, we often say, how do we handle church discipline when it goes all the way to, we know you're sinning. But I think there's a broader conversation that needs to be had. How do you handle church discipline when it is an accusation? I know right now, um, my guess would be if anyone I knew who is paid in ministry was accused of having a sexual sin or something like that, the church would probably suspend them for a second. They say, hey, we're going to push pause on you while we do some sort of investigation. Um, I think that that should also apply to anyone who is a leader within the church. If we're called to be above reproach, then yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what that's that's what above reproach means. Yeah. But how often has how often have people used that as a manipulative, abusive tool like, I, listen, I'm above reproach. Constantly. Why are we even going to ask this question? Above reproach doesn't mean you're unquestionable. So the plot, I mean, here, here, that's a really good point. So I, because I, I don't want to just say the previous pastor I served under was evil. His best friend was a music pastor who was accused of touching a boy inappropriately in the bathroom. And his best friend took his own life. And then the boy admitted that he made it up because he didn't like him. So, so there are these accusations that get thrown that just destroy your life and you go through the church discipline. And, and so I, I would say, you know, all that pain was probably surfacing up in this situation, but that doesn't mean that we could just advocate our responsibility as leaders. 
I think one of the things that I've seen very helpfully done in a lot of churches is they have policies set in place before this comes up because you do not want to have to navigate these waters without the right tools. So if you have a policy now, if an accusation comes, we're going to put you on pause anyone on pause. And these are the steps we're going to do to trace that accusation. It's a good way to get it out of the emotional space before it ever creeps in there. Yeah. You get into that like, well, but I know him and he would never, that's just red flag, danger, danger. If you're listening to this and you're a pastor, you're a new pastor, you need to background check everybody that has anything to do with kids or youth. And you need to not play around with your, your, your liability policies. Like you, you cannot play with that. I have a former intern who is in jail, um, we'll just say for a sexual sin, which is a story I can tell you guys when we're not recording sometime. And because, and this was at a church that I was at when I was back in seminary, um, and the, the acts did not happen at the church. He was not employed at the church when they happened. Um, this was after he was employed at the church that they happened. But because these things happened, we went hard into like the ministry safe and, and all of this stuff. And I got to tell you, it it was frustrating because it puts a lot it, of red tape in the way. It, well, sure it, does. it puts a lot of red tape in the way. It, it made it difficult to do ministry. It's like, ah, you can't give a kid a ride home from youth group unless there's 17 people in the car and you have to drop all 17 of them off at the same time. Otherwise, there will, you know, it, and it was, man, this is so difficult and boy, do I wish we had something like that in place when he worked here. So because, difficult, but so worth because it. Because if we had something in place when he worked here, we wouldn't have, you know. Wow. And Well, and policies, I, I worked at a church where the policies that were in place actually saved the church from an accusation. That it's an accusation, a false accusation was made, and the church was able to say, look, that actually could not have happened. Here's the policies we had. Here's the signatures. Here's the way we did this. And so that really helped them. And, you know, the other thing about this is like, you can have all the policies you want, but people are sneaky and evil. And I do think this goes back to really having and working hard at a normalizing a culture of confession and repentance, I think would solve hopefully a lot of these issues before they get there. Because we've talked about this before. This, you know, you don't start filming women up their skirt just on the first day. You're, this guy has probably got a raging porn addiction, and that leads to one thing and leads to another thing. And if maybe if there was a, a, a normative culture of confessing and repenting and restoring, he could have been restored before he got to that dark place because sin will always take you darker than you thought you were ever going to go. When you are seeing something serious in your people or on your own staff, to take it very seriously. You know what I'm saying? Like this is not something that – there, there, there shouldn't be any kind of like, hey, well, I know that guy is a good friend of mine. I'm just going to like assume the best in them. But like assuming the best may be going through the course of action of clearing their name by by going through an investigation and 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 and, and having an impartial person do that investigation. Now there are some things that like, you know, <laughs> you know if. if Adultery, like, like when I think obviously some of these church discipline cases are like more obvious. Someone's caught in adultery. All right. Well, if they're, if they're not, let's say they're not like serving in a specific place, they're not an elder, they're just a member of your church. Well, at the minimum, church discipline looks like marriage counseling, right? It looks like walking through that, walking through this couple and figuring out how did it get here and restoring their marriage and stuff like that. 
um, when it comes to like a actual crime, something illegal, I think church discipline needs to be divided into two conversations. It's like there's this spiritual aspect and there's what Jeff began with by saying, well, rendering to Caesar, what is Caesar? Just because it happened in the church doesn't mean it's not illegal, right? Like just because it happened in the church doesn't mean that like that person shouldn't get arrested. Like, that, like we always talk about this with like serial killers that come to Christ. Glad their soul's going to heaven. They still should be in jail, right? Like now there's no serial killers we're talking about in our, in our churches right now, hopefully Lord willing. But what we're talking about is if there is a serious, like if there is a serious, like criminal activity, I love I think Andrew said this, not everything immoral is illegal, but not, but everything illegal is immoral. That's like, I've never like put it in that kind of this or that type of thing. And I think that's a really good way to put it. We're like, if there's something illegal happening in your church, whether it's a staff person or a member, it needs to go through the proper channels of authority. Um, you know, there, there, there's no like, uh, like, hey, well, we'll just deal with this in house because then you're dealing with literally all the stuff you're seeing in these IFB churches for decades, all the stuff that's coming up in the news about, you know, from the Me Too movement. It's because it was handled internally when it should have gone to the police. And perhaps some of the cases that we heard about more recently wouldn't have happened if the people back then were dealt with a little more seriously. I, you know, we we were talking about sermons and not making yourself the hero. Um, so I hate to be that guy, but I just thought of something when Frank was talking. I had a kid in youth group, and this is you know close to ten years ago now. You know, back when not everybody has a smartphone, but at the, kind of the the beginning of the uh, era of the pictures being sent around, you, you know, you know, those pictures, the pictures, the pictures, the pics. And so we were at youth group, our youth space, like, you know, we had lots of couch areas and stuff and somebody picked up his phone that was seated uh, or that was like on the coffee table in front of the couches. And sure enough, a group of, you know, eighth grade girls grabbed this ninth or 10th grade boys phone. And there it was. And it was so incredibly awkward. By the time I heard, 30 seconds later, legitimately 20 kids had seen at youth group Mm. and it was like, like, crap, you know, what do we do? You know, we had to send a letter home to, Hey, if your kid was at youth group on Wednesday night, they may have seen a penis. Um, so that was, (laughs) that was, that was fun. And then, you know, I, I called one of the sheriff's deputies that we had a community relationship with at the, at the church. Um, and so, you know, here's this kid who's humiliated and devastated. And, you know, we we went through the here's the right thing to do. It's difficult. But then I sat with him when he was getting like yelled at by the sheriff's def- deputy. And, um, you know, and it was, you know, kind of me being willing to take it on the chin that, you know, yes, you know, kids shouldn't have their phones out at church. Sure. That's what caused that, you know. And so it was. So we we went through the stuff, but then when he was getting you know yelled at by the cop, um, I was sitting there with him during all of that, and he and I are still buddies. You know, he's hmm. he's got a kid; he's in his mid twenties, um, and we will still text on a regular basis. He'll check in on me, and being the person willing to sit with him when it was really ugly is, I think, what church discipline is. It's not just, 
it's not just we're going to call out what is wrong, yeah. but it's the I'm going to go through the mud. It's restorative. Of it, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's the that's what it is. It's the and the restoration takes work. And I think that's why so many churches want to sweep things under the rug right. because the restoration is messy it's and so it's hard. dirty and it's embarrassing for the church. Like mm-hmm. I, I had to send letters out to like every family in the youth. It was it would have been so much easier to not acknowledge what happened and just smack him upside the head and say, don't be an idiot. But being willing to sit there and, you know, kind of take some of the blame and take some of the responsibility, which had nothing to do with me, but being his youth pastor, I was going to sit there with him, made the relationship stronger than what it was. And we we never had that issue again. So that's good. (laughs) I think you said, I think you said something before we transition, super important. Like that's so gospel centered what you just said, but on a practical level, Man, what a great idea. It, if you're a pastor, be friends with a police officer or a sheriff's officer nearby. Buy them coffee. Have a relationship with them. And if you have a situation where you're not sure, call your friend and explain the situation in generic terms. Don't give away names and ask, I mean, is this something I need to report? What, sh- what do I need to do here? C- get that counsel from them. Um, because just on a prudence level, your hands are clean at that point, but also you're not wise enough to maybe always know exactly when it's Caesars and when it's not. So that's a, I think that's just a great practical thing to do. And and as a youth pastor, you know, all of us have backgrounds in youth ministry. You could always pass the buck up. So it was always somebody else's call. And as a, as a lead pastor, you don't have that anymore. And so having that resource of, you know, I, I, there's somebody who I'm close with who worked for CPS for quite a while. And then um, I have the phone numbers of the community officers that are here in our city. And boy, is it helpful to be able to bounce things off of them. Because then if we do uh, this again, super practical, if we get sued, no, no, no. I went directly to deputy so-and-so. Along with that, take notes when you do this stuff. Like keep yeah. a little journal of this person confessed this to me. If you use planning center, you can use this in the notes section of each person. And you can keep a note of, and I called deputy so-and-so because you might not remember. If an accusation happens and three years later, somebody is like, hey, the church knew about it. And you can go back and look, oh, man, I did call and ask for – keep notes of that stuff because that stuff will matter. Right. And that way, J.D. Greer does not launch an investigation on you yes. 12 years after the fact. Oof. Wow, good. Hey, um, before we transition, Andrew, you said something that I think is, is good, and I'll end it with this. Andrew, you're killing it today, man. Yeah, you He's are on fire. Dropping, dropping dimes. He should be a it's, pastor. It, it's really the Buccaneers, sure. baby. It's all about the Bucks. <laughs> um, when, when I was 17, uh, like literally the, the, my, the end of my senior year, I, um, I went through um, uh, some church discipline with my youth pastor. And it's not a private thing. Like I, I openly talk about. It. We can talk about it another day on the show. But um, if it wasn't for that moment where he was disciplining me, like that process of being disciplined, I don't think I would be a pastor today. Because through that moment of church discipline, I was able to have my relationship restored. And as Jeff keeps talking about, I had nothing to hide anymore. I was, I was fully known. And because of that, it gave me the confidence to be able to even go into ministry. Nobody could come up to you and say, "Guess what? I found out." Yeah. I would love to talk about that one day uh, on the show because uh, that, that was that's an example of church discipline leading to restoration that leads to a positive outcome of uh, of, of of transformation. So the fall quick- of Frank Gill, we will title that episode <laughs> the fall, the, the rise and fall and rise again of Frank Gill. It's going to be look, a great look, episode. Uh, <laughs> that'd be a good show. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with the question of the day.
Here's a simple question of the day. We're, two weeks from now, the Super Bowl is going to be in Tampa. The Kansas City Chiefs will take on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Mahomes versus Brady. Is it going to be the passing of a torch or just the continuation of the GOAT? Who is going to win the Super Bowl? I want to go in order. Jeff, then Delmar, then Andrew, then Tim, and I'll give my answer. And then uh, and then we'll we'll pass this on, obviously, to the group. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? I I just – I can't – I how can you bet against Brady right now? You know what I'm saying? I mean, Mahomes is good. He's great. He's incredible to watch. He, I mean, the way he can throw the ball, any arm angle, any like body position, incredible. But I just, he's just, I mean, Brady is just a goat, man. Like, and I used to hate him like a year ago. Me too. <laughs> but, Me too. But I don't, I'm not, I wouldn't even say I'm a huge Bucks fan right now. I mean, I pull for the Bucks, but yeah, it's like, what, how can you bet against him? Exactly. Dumb Martin. All right, so it's Mahomes or Brady, right? Yeah, this yeah. is football we're talking about. Kansas City. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got Brady. I just pulled Brady. He flipped cool. the coin. So I'm going to have to go. I did bet on him. So. Okay, good. Andrew, what do you got? Well, two weeks from today, I plan on not recording a show with you gentlemen because uh, I will be at Disney's Magic Kingdom. Andrew, whose idea was this? It was Timmy's idea, but uh, Timmy and I have reserved our Disney days at Magic Kingdom for the day after the Super Bowl because I plan very much on being there for the uh, Tom and Gronk victory parade. I will be in the background of their we're going to Disney World moment, so go Bucks. Dude, that is so meta of you to plan it that was, far ahead. It was Tim. <laughs> Tim great. texted Tim texted me right after the Bucks game yep. and said, "Hey, there are still you know because you have to reserve if you're an annual pass holder, you have to reserve days in advance, like what park you're going to go to. Stupid COVID. It's just like so Tim was like, Tim was like, yeah, there's there's <laughs> still there's still there's still seats available in the back, uh, but for uh, <laughs> for Magic Kingdom that day. So just in case." We're planning on being at Magic Kingdom that day for the Buccaneers victory parade. Yeah, so you know exactly where I land. And my wife, as soon as the game was over, she's like, Tim, the annual password or Facebook group is, is going nuts. They're all reserving their tickets for Monday. Are you going? And that's when I hopped on, got mine, texted Andrew. He got his. And it's not just because of Tom Brady. I'll tell you why I'm, I'm going Buccaneers. It's because of what Tom Brady did when he threw those interceptions and how the defense responded after that. That's what told me, okay. Because Tommy's not throwing three interceptions in the Super Bowl. He's not, but look what the defense did when he threw the three. They stopped them on consecutive time. It was one of those like, wow, okay. Six this, points off turnovers in a game with three interceptions. This team is special, and Tom Brady is at the helm of the special team. I feel like, I, I, I mean, this is funny. Not the special is, teams. No, no. This special all, team. They don't let him punt anymore. I mean, it feels he could like probably return feel, a punt. He, if he went on special teams, he'd be the GOAT. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> so it, so all five of us, myself included, are going to go for Tampa. I think the re, I think what's – here's why I'm going for Tampa. In the Since the inception of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Bucs have never been a top-tier team. They've never been known as like the how the Packers or the Patriots – or, or the Cowboys, they, they've never had that kind of uh, aura of themselves of being like an elite team. They've always felt like a ragtag group of players that are just like tr- either failing terribly or they're fighting, clawing to the top. And I still feel like even though they've assembled somewhat of like the dream team by getting Antonio Brown and Gronk, who in reality didn't do much uh, in the in that game on Sunday, it was basically the Brady show with the with a great defense. I I have to go with Tampa because one it's 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 a true underdog story like no 
Tampa went from nobodies like last season to a Super Bowl contending team with with it's just it's just ridiculous. It just shows you what money can do, man. It's the Glazers know what they're doing. I'm not saying it's wrong. For, it's football. For a change. For a change. As a Tampa fan, sometimes the Glazers have been very disappointing. <laughs> this was this was a fun show. Uh, I would love to hear from people online. With that being said, join us on our Facebook group. Find us online. We want to stay connected. With that being said, I'm Frank Gill. I'm Jeff Simpson. I'm Delmar Pete. I'm Andrew Larson. And I'm Timothy Miller. And this is Practically Pastoring. Go Bucks! Thanks for listening. Get connected to other pastors by joining the Practically Pastoring Facebook group, where we get to share ideas and make each other better.